sleeping in my pickup, feeling like I'd hit a blow. My marriage had been canceled, and so had my show. Well, it was four in the morning, and dawn was coming soon. I was bound by gravity, so far from the moon, yeah. Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you are tuned in to a special bonus episode of My Turning Point. Before he blasted off into space last week, for real this time, I had the opportunity to sit down with legend, icon, whatever you want to call him, it fits, Mr. William Shatner to talk about his brilliant new album, Bill, an autobiographical spoken word collection that finds him teaming with Joe Jonas and several other musicians fascinating conversation with Mr. Shatner. I don't really call anybody Mr., but when you're 90 years old and you've done what he's done, he's earned it. Hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. You're you're in shadow. Mysterioso. It's a hidden face and we don't know what questions he's going to ask. All right, how's this? Is this better? No. All right. But it's suitable. But it's suitable. All right. So how are you doing today? Where's home base these days? Where's home base is Los Angeles. All right. I am down in Long Beach where it's nice and overcast and hazy. So well, great. I'm in the valley. I'm in the valley and it's very bright and warm. What part of the valley? Just I'm curious because I grew up all over the valley. Okay. I'm in the hills and I'm overlooking the uh, uh, San Gabriel Mountain. I can see the San Gabriels from here and I can see uh, uh, I'm on the Santa Monica Mountains. Uh, looking okay. at San Gabriel's. That's as I'm always just curious because I grew up all over the San Fernando Valley. But uh, we only have 30 minutes, and and there is a lot to digest in this wonderful record. So enough about location. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wonderful record. I got to ask you a little bit about that. Is it wonderful? It is. It's you know for me as a writer, it is absolutely fascinating. How fabulous. That's about the third or fourth. These are just new reviews. These are early reviews. And we're, we're, we're uh, tasting each one. Uh, it's beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Oh, it's so compelling. And it's so interesting. And as, as you know, I mean, I've done hundreds, if not thousands of interviews over COVID. And it's been fascinating to talk to how every artist from Stevie Nicks to Willie Nelson has processed the things in a different way. But I really love, as a writer, this record. And so I'll start with an obvious place. Look, to me, great writing often is subconscious, and it leads you in a direction. So were there things in the middle of making this record that surprised you as you started to reveal all this stuff? Everything surprised me. I had no idea. Uh, The the story that will go down in legend um, is that a friend of mine named Rob... Rob the poet. I didn't know he was a poet. A friend of mine, executive. And uh, we would meet whenever he came from New York to Los Angeles. We would meet and we'd have Chinese food at a particular Chinese restaurant. Duck. Time for duck. And he would, we would meet and, we'd, and we became very good friends over many, many years. Uh, decades. Decades. And, um, and but we just that's how all we knew from each other having dinner every time he came in and talking about ourselves and each other. Then one day he brought another fellow. His name was Dan Miller and Dan Miller is, uh, was, is, and uh, unknown to me was a, uh, 
a uh, Emmy Award winning uh, musician who had uh, a group called They Might Be Giants, whom I had never heard of, but everybody applauds when I mention it. So a lot of people have heard They Might Be Giants. So Dan Miller, Rob the Poet, and I would had dinner one night. And I, I believe it was Dan Miller who said we should make an album. And I had been making albums. I had been making albums. And, and, uh, and we said, oh, what a great idea. I didn't know that Dan and Rob had been musician friends in university. Uh, Rob went on to do business and, and uh, Dan went on to continue his music. And that Rob wrote lyrics. So Rob was going to write the lyrics. And what do we write about? So somebody said, well, it wasn't me. And I said, let's write about Shatner. So we decided to make the album autobiographical. And Rob, who knew a great deal about me because of all these meetings, the books I've written, the things that. So we started making the album autobiographical about events that happened in my life. And one by one, these things came out. And then Dan would get the lyrics and either he would set a rhythmic bed at what he thought the music was, or I would record the song in a iPhone and send it to Dan. And then Dan would put some music to it. Then we get it back. And when that's not right, I'm not doing it well. I do it again. And then would, and it went back and forth over this year of COVID. And out of this COVID thing has come this very, very personal heart. To say heartfelt doesn't even begin to tell you how personally connected the three of us are to this album. It is a work of love, of, of uh, a devotion of time, uh, but mainly it's such involvement uh, in the process that uh, it's one of the events of my life. Well, that's so interesting because it is so autobiographical. So how much of the lyrics were came from Rob knowing about you and how much of it was you? And we'll, we'll start well, with that. You, I, I prefer to say that the lyrics came from Rob, but Rob keeps insisting that in my description of what I thought would make a good song, that he used a lot of words. So he insists on saying the songs were written, um, uh, the lyrics were written by he and I, but there's a giant H in he and a little I and I. And then, and okay, then. See, that is so, oh, go ahead. Well, and then came the problem of the character of the song. What was this? How did the song fit? And that was a, a point of discussion and who, who uh, would accompany me and how could we make the song a Western song for Brad Paisley and a, a lovely modern song for Joe Jonas. And of course, a tough song and a bluesy riff for Robert Randolph, etc. Oh, yeah. you've heard the album. Exactly. Oh, yeah. oh, I've listened to it from start to finish. Like I said, oh, it's compelling. It's like, it's like a theatrical play. Exactly. So we, so one of the problems was, uh, let's write a song about loneliness. Uh, um, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the. the it's, it's called loneliness. Yeah. No, it's that name. John Lurie. What? John Lurie. Yes, uh, but Yo-Yo Ma. So we did the song, and, and it's, it's filled with sadness, filled with ennui, filled with fear. 
And I thought, let's get Yo-Yo Ma to play that beautiful thing and, and have him talk about loneliness with his instrument. So we went after Yo-Yo Ma and Yo-Yo Ma uh, essentially turned us down. Uh, he, he was busy. And then I said, well, what we need is a, an instrument, a, a kind of instrument that would portray loneliness. So that would be obligato behind me. And, I, and we found him, Lurie. So, and he does this remarkable job. And that became the song. So how to characterize any of these songs became an interesting problem as well. Not only were we writing a song, uh, taking an event in my life, and then finding the poetry of it, but we had to find the character of it as well. All right. We're going to come to this in a second because this is fascinating in terms of the collaborations. But I want to go back for a second because, look, I talk about this with artists all the time, right? If you are Brian Ferry from Roxy Music, for example, covering a Bob Dylan album, you're discovering new things in it. You're hearing nuances in it that you had never known before. So this is absolutely fascinating to me. You are hearing these very personal events in your life portrayed by Rob, who is a good friend, who knows you well but still as an artist bringing his own interpretation. So were there things that emerged that he said that really kind of, and I asked you earlier about surprising, but hearing it through his eyes, were there things that, that, you know, really well, fascinated you? Or uh, you're like, you know, th there were probably on every song, but certainly several songs, things that he would write that I would call him and say, uh, that doesn't, isn't quite right. It doesn't sound. And we would fix it. So, um, and because I don't want to take too much uh, uh, attention, too much, uh, too much pride in the lyrics when Rob wrote many of the words, but at the same time, I don't want to deny the fact that I had a hand in the writing of the words and the character of the song and what songs. And indeed, many of most, many of the, most of those songs, many, all of those songs, I would suggest, why don't we do a song and this is the thing and this is what I see and this is what we hear. Uh, for example, a song that's not on the album and should the label pick up the option, which they have, we would write a song called uh, Are You Bayou? And I was reading about the bayous and, and uh, how beautiful they are and the marigolds and the flowers. Uh, but then I thought, my God, there are alligators and there's sticks and there's poisonous snakes in the. So a bayou has a surface beauty, but is evil lurks beneath. Do we know people like that? And that became a song, but that was the character I gave it. Well, one of my favorite songs on the record is Masks. <laughs> and I love the Masks with uh, Dave Cause. The song Masks. Mass. Track 11. It's the jazzy one with Dave Cause. It's all about oh. the acting. Uh, it's about what? It's the one all about the acting. It has that great line in there about like, oh, I kind of fooled you all. It's the one all about mask. the mask. Mask. Yes. 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 Holding up a mask, of course. Uh, masks. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and the, the, the line uh, which characterizes the whole song being, uh, I, I don't uh, dare go out without my mask. Uh, so a, a, as an actor and as a person, 
we're always holding up masks. And so that became like a fascinating song about the masks everybody wears. Like we're wearing a mask now, interviewer and interviewee. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a mask. What happens when you drop that? What happens when you drop the mask? Are you a- ever able to drop the mask with anybody but yourself in the mirror? Well, see, that's interesting because this, uh, that's such a great metaphor for this record, because in a sense, you are dropping the mask on this record. So how does it feel? Like, that's is there a- great insight? Great insight. Exactly. That's exactly right. And yet you could argue that every one of those songs is also a mask. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But it's, int- I mean, okay. So as an artist, yes, of course, you create a little bit of a character, even as a musician. You know, again, Bob Dylan was born Robert Zimmerman. But yeah. there are moments as an artist where you have that vulnerability that speak out. So for you, I'm just curious as a music fan, what are some of your favorite moments of vulnerability from other people? And how the did that influence whole, this record? The whole album is vulnerable. The whole album is a revelation uh, from me to you. And actually, as we wrote and discovered the song, it became a revelation within itself. The, the original story written down was one revelation. Delving into it with Rob, this extraordinary uh, gentleman uh, who's not only insightful and lyrical, but has the words, sees things that I didn't see. Oh, I didn't, I didn't see that. So he had an insight. And then along comes Dan, who lays out, hey, maybe this artist would be a good one to, to go along with. Uh, it, became, it became a confluence. The Mississippi isn't just the interior river of the, of the Americas. It's it's got all these other rivers, the Arkansas and the whatever rivers are feeding into the Mississippi. And that's what this album essentially is between the, the, the three partners. And then, as you say, you bring in the collaborator. And it's funny because obviously then, you know, in terms of the vulnerability, you know, I'm thinking of like Joni Mitchell Blue, that album, for example, or Bob Dylan, the song, If You See Her Say Hello. I think the equivalent on this record would probably be So Far From The Moon, where you talk about the show being canceled and the divorce. The, what was the line? of uh, The show had been canceled. My marriage had been canceled and so had my show. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting for you because it's also, I talk about this to people all the time, right? You learn things as you get older. You grow, you change, and it takes a lot of time to look back on things. So looking back on it, it's funny. Do you look at that now almost, I want to say, as a different person? Or do, or do you take exper- like learning things from these experiences that you then can apply to life now? Because you probably, when you were dealing with this in the moon landing on 69, it's not something that you could really process everything that was happening at once because it was so you're much. Not processing it, not, you're living it and it's painful. The pain never goes away. What happens is you get a distance from it and you say, okay, that was painful, but... You know, I had uh, I had some really, really good meal and that was delicious. And I had it with somebody I love and that was fun. And so now you're in the midst of joy looking back on pain. And so the pain is assuaged, but the pain is still there. So it's interesting for you. And this goes back to the surprise thing, but also just like, you know, some of the moments on here that 
you know, that you can now look back on and appreciate. Cause again, you do put so much of your life into this. And, you know, I want to ask you about the Joe Jonas song as well, because obviously his label is putting it out, but I mean, that song's interesting too, to just talk about the, so where does the guilt come from going back as a kid? Do you know where that stems from? Well, um, there's a song in there about, uh, called Tuffy, uh, which, uh, is also so autobiographical. I'm Jewish and I was raised in uh, a very um, other religion uh, school and group. So, and there was a great deal of anti-Semitism in that, in that time there. And so I had to fight uh, almost every day. Uh, a couple of people would jump me and I'd have to fight back. And in fact, somebody showed me the yearbook on the high school yearbook and that's where I remember that they called me Tuffy because I had to be, I had to fight. And what I discovered and what I might write about at some future time is when you're a kid, whether you're black or, or any uh, outside group, then what is the prevalent, the dominating uh, social group? If you're otherwise, Frequently, you can be led to believe as a kid that you're inferior. You begin to believe after so much pounding, literally and figuratively, you think, well, is it possible that I am inferior? Uh, and that can stay with you. Um, and there's no telling what effect that had on me today, uh, but certainly guilt is one of them and and so the other day i was in front of an audience uh, entertaining them uh ad lib i had no prepared material and i said i've got this album and there's one of the songs as i said i i feel guilty is one of the songs does anybody and i asked the audience does anybody else feel guilty all the time and a couple of people raised their arms at which time a siren outside the theater went by and I said, I hope they're not after me. And it got a big laugh because guilt, feeling guilty about something is a very human emotion. Feel guilty, feeling guilty all the time probably is a little on the psychotic edge. Yeah. Well, I'm just laughing about it because I grew up Jewish as well. And so, you know, it's also inherent. So did you have the Jewish mother who made you feel guilty all the time? <laughs> exactly. There is a thing thing called Jewish guilt, but that's because we don't look at other social groups. Uh, My understanding is many black families bring their, especially their boys up by saying, now, if you get stopped by the police, here's what you have to do. And they're going, what? And because they need a different set of rules. Uh, keep your hands on the wheel, don't be smart ass, you know, all that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, the policeman stops me and, hey, buddy, I'm sorry, what did I do? And it's, it's somebody I, I don't fear stopping me. Well, and it's interesting because what you're talking about, obviously, you know, is a little bit of white privilege, which I think a lot of people deal with. But at the same time, you know, it's very different for you because, I mean, what, it's been now going on 60 years that you've been famous. So... It gets hard. I mean, does it get hard to remember what it was like before that? 
No, as evidenced by the album. Yeah, well, this is another fascinating thing going back to COVID, though. It's funny, is I mean, and you talk about this on Monday Night in London, which is a great track as well. Isn't that something? I mean, writing a song like that, uh, uh, I think that was Rob's idea. He said, why don't we write about... I said, well, my God, I was lying there in bed about noon, getting ready for the performance, 3,500 people, the Apollo Theater sold out, and I'm on my way, and Boris Johnson says uh, no more than 10 people can, can gather. And I'm thinking, good God, what is that going to do to the performance? And it actually happened. I got in the car and I thought, I wonder if anybody's going to be there. And I got there and I heard some people. I said, is there anybody out there? Oh, yeah. And I, I got into the, went, went through the parting in the curtain and all these people stood up and there was an empty seat in the theater. Everybody stood and we began to weep, all of us. Uh, tears was, were in my eyes. Uh, and it was a most meaningful couple of hours in the theater. I mean, it was just remarkable. Yeah. I mean, and it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful story. And it's one of those things that, you know, I think that's one of the cool things about this record too, is when you take a track like So Far From The Moon, you take a track like Monday Night In London, it takes these very relatable experiences that people yeah. can, you know, everybody has their experience. Like, for example, you know, if you're of a certain age, which I am, you'll never forget where you were when John Lennon was shot. Right. You know? Right. So now I'm curious as well, what are one or two more of those moments for you? Maybe they didn't make this record. But those moments that you can, t you know, whether it's finding out, you know, really discovering COVID. I mean, I was at a Korean barbecue restaurant when the NBA shut down. And that's when you realize, like, okay, if they're shutting down a major sport in the middle of a game, this is very serious. For me, uh, I wanted to hearken back uh, to the past more than the present. Because uh, I'm in, a, as you point out, a sort of esoteric atmosphere. And so the, uh, we've written... Uh, there's 12 or 13 songs on the album. Uh, we've written maybe 20 songs, uh, uh, not knowing what songs we're going to put on this album, but the other songs are even more valid because they were latter day. So there's a song there uh, that goes right back to uh, my early par parenthood of a child. Uh, and Ben Folds wants to do that. Uh, if we should be able to do another album, Ben wants to do this song. It's called um, uh, Lion on the Wall. And it's when my first child in another bedroom, uh, about five or six, started uh, crying. And I left our bedroom, went over there. And, What's wrong? And she pointed to shadows on the wall the wind uh, uh, stirring the, the boughs of the trees outside and the lamplight, and there were these shadows on the wall. And I held her in my arms and I explained they're just shadows and not to be fearful. And the song continues that how easy and wonderful it was to assuage her fear, but how difficult it became as she got older to assuage fear and, and help her on a more complex problem. So it's called Lion on the Wall. Lion on the Wall, Ben wants to do it. And it's my first foray into trying to help a child uh, in that way. It's Those are meaningful moments that are little, tiny moments that parents might skip by. You know, oh, yeah, that happened to me. I forgot about that. But it's, you can't forget about those things. They're they're pivotal. Yeah. All right. So what what's... Uh, you mentioned if Joe picks up the option. So tell me about working with Joe on this record. Well, actually, you worked with two Joes. Joe Walsh, who I just interviewed, and Joe Jonas. 
So, but tell me about working with Jonas on this and, and, you know, what's the likelihood that we will get to hear the second record? Because as a fan, I'm already excited well, to hear the rest well, of the story. Well, there you are. I, I, uh, when we finished this album, uh, and Joe had, uh, you know, it's an, I'm, I'm not quite sure of the history. I do know that Joe Jonas heard the album in the making, uh, he heard cuts and wanted to be a part of it and to represent it. So he took it under his own label and brought it to Republic, which brought it to Universal. So that's the sequence of events. I've got to, I, uh, I, I've talked to Joe a couple of times and then waited for his contribution to uh, I Feel Guilty, uh, not knowing what he was going to do. Um, but I really haven't sat down. What, what we need to do, uh, if they should pick up an, uh, the option, what we need to do is sit down, Joe and, and maybe Rob and, and, and Dan and I sit down and having insightful interviewers like yourself ask us these questions and, and delve into why. why, the why of each of us, what happened. What happened to Joe? What did he hear that he loved so much that he decided to uh, to bring it uh, uh, to the uh, uh, people that he would bring it to in uh, in other labels to try and sell us to them? What did he hear? And what did the people the people in the other uh, uh, on the other labels? Uh, what did they hear that they that this re- that they responded to? Because our songs next are even more complex, are even more meaningful to us than this present. We learned how to do this on this album. So that's fascinating. But I, it's, again, from the standpoint of a fan, I can just tell you it's the honesty. It's, again, there's something so you know compelling about someone putting themselves out there in such a way. But also, from a musical standpoint, the collaborations, but also even like, it's funny, this morning, I was listening to What Do We Know while I was working out, and that rising crescendo, it just keeps going and it's like perfect music for that. So every, every song has its own musical feel as well. It's not just a, you know, good for you because I was totally aware that, you know, you can read, you, you, you can read a poem and just read the poem and get the, the, the meter of it and all that. But it's another thing to dramatize a poem that has its own intrinsic rhythm so that, Something builds or something builds musically to the middle and then it, 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 uh, it recesses and then builds again. And it's in these lyrics that I knew that I wanted to perform musically that I could almost hear the musicians behind me um, in the uh, believe in the spiritual. So I did it on my little microphone on an iPhone, thinking spiritual. Now you do a spiritual, there are gaps when you're, when the chorus is in just believe, just believe, you're, you're, you're imagining that. But until you hear it, do you hear the significance of, of our culture? And we hear that rhythm in other, in Baptist churches. And you realize that's, wait a minute, that's an appeal to God. That's a, that's a religious belief. And it has so much more emphasis than just uh, belief. And then I began to realize the import. So I had to re-record it because the chorus added such uh, em- emphasis that 
I, I lacked it in the original reading because I, I, as much as I imagined it being a spiritual, I didn't give it enough significance. All right. Well, unfortunately, this is fascinating. I know we've got to wrap up, but we'll make this last question. And it's so funny. I just got the wrap up from Nicole as well. But as we're talking about this and the performance of it, obvious question, are there any plans to do this live? Because I feel like it would work so well as a spoken word, like as a performance as well. We've thought of it. It's an awful lot of work. I've got to memorize or at least see the lyrics somewhere. And, uh, you know, it was done separately. Most groups go into a, or at least it's my understanding, go into a studio and they all sit around, they play their instruments, and it's a generic thing. What happened here is pieces were put together separately and unbeknownst to the other. Now, Joe Walsh heard me. Uh, I, I appealed to Joe, who is uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine, uh, almost a friend, and said, Joe, you got to do this. And he was working with his group at the time. So had he been in the studio with me, I might have performed it a little differently. I don't know. Yeah, makes sense. And obviously, there's a lot of people involved in this and everything that was done during COVID takes on a different thing because, like you say, you couldn't be there live. You couldn't do this like you talk about in the release. Everything was sort of transferred across the globe. Um, but like I said, this was fascinating, compelling. I, I'm such a fan of the record. Is there anything that you want to add I did not ask you about? No. You've got many questions. This is part of my life. Uh, and so the questions are many fold. And we'll do this again sometime. Oh, no, I, I'm such, like I said, as a writer, this stuff is absolutely fascinating to me. So I appreciate the vulnerability, the honesty. And, uh, you know, next time I talk to Joe Jonas, I'm going to tell him he better put out the second record because, you know, I just hey. want to hear what comes next. Exactly. Good for you. Pleasure Thanks talking so much, to man. you. Take Thank care. You. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you have been listening to My Turning Point with special guest William Shatner. Proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because our Sleep Number 360 smart bed is really smart. It senses your movement and automatically adjusts to help keep you both comfortable. Plus, it's temperature balancing so you stay cool. It's even smart enough to know exactly how long, how well, and when you slept. And to help you get almost 30 minutes more restful sleep per night. Sleep Number takes care of the science. All you have to do is sleep. And now, during our Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed Queen now only $19.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Hot summer days bring out that carefree fun, just like a caramel ribbon crunch frappuccino. It's icy smooth with layers of caramel and whipped cream, all with a crunchy caramel sugar topping. Your happy is here at Starbucks. Order ahead on the app. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 